Welcome, James, to the World XP Podcast. This, uh, I appreciate you taking the time out of your, uh, I'm sure, very busy schedule to, to sit down and, t- and talk with me today. Um, I found out that you were a lawyer and I was intrigued. I didn't want to ask uh, Peanut, shout out to Peanut, uh, <laughs> right away if you wanted to come on because I wasn't sure like what, so, what sort of law you did or whatever, but you said special education law, which is something that I've not heard of at all. Yeah, so. Yeah, welcome. And if you want to like go ahead and give a short introduction of, of yourself and kind of what special education law is, just so people have some background and some context into what they're going to be listening to, and then we can go from there. Sure. Uh, James Atkinson. I'm an of counsel at a small law firm in Fairfax called the Law Office of Gracie Kim. We almost exclusively do special education law, which basically means that we represent children and their parents. Um, kids who have special needs, school-age kids uh, in their local schools, whether that be elementary, middle, high school, even up to um, the graduate level. And we just try to get them the support they need through the local school systems. Awesome. Sounds like very, I'd say, underrepresented, I would say, (laughs) if that's that's fair to say. Yeah, it's a really niche area of practice, Um, including ourselves. There's probably less than a dozen lawyers dedicated to this area of practice in the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. Sheesh, you're in high demand. Keeps you uh, keeps you employed, I'm sure. Yeah, you're 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 telling me. Yeah. (laughs) So we were talking briefly uh, beforehand, and originally you wanted to do creative writing, and somehow that morphed into. Special education law, which sounds like a lot of people I know went to college for one thing and ended up doing something completely different. But can you kind of walk us through a little bit how how you got to that point? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, like all people in college, I started out still wanting to do something different. I went to Virginia Tech as an economics major, and I took like one economics class, and I was like, oof, that is not for me. Um, And so during that process, I became enamored with creative writing. And uh, I really wanted to do, so I studied both the illustration and writing of children's books, like children's picture books. So I like even, you know, made one or two, uh, didn't get them formally published, but presented them to the school, et cetera. During that process, I had a professor who was kind of like my mom away from home. And she convinced me to go do an internship abroad because I was getting to the end of uh, undergrad and I was thinking to myself, you know, this creative writing thing is nice, but like, I'd I'd like to not be destitute. And so I was looking at potential options, uh, one of which was law school. And uh, my dad is a lawyer, he's a tax attorney. And my godfather, who I'm named after is also a lawyer. uh, And they both tried their absolute hardest to get me to not go to law school. Um, But uh, I, I got this internship. And it was actually in the northern part of London, at a, a small uh, solicitor's firm called Douglas Silas Solicitors that happened to just do special education. And at the time I was willing to do that because I had you know, the background with like children's literature and a little bit of teaching background. And so uh, I went into it not knowing at all what the heck uh, that area of practice was, but I really became enamored with it. Um, I saw a very underserved population and the fact that I had already been involved through, you know, different organizations and activities and instruction, like teaching at at various different levels. And even I still had very little idea that this was an area. 
um, was fascinating to me. And after that summer, I decided I did want to go to law school after all, to my father's dismay. And uh, he and I, I wanted to do special ed law. And so I applied. I went to George Mason Law School, uh, which is, uh, other than the University of Chicago, the second most conservative law school in the country. So probably not the best one to go to if you want to do special ed law, but I really enjoyed my experience there. And uh, long story very short, in law school, I managed to get a job as an intern at a small firm that was only doing special ed because the principal attorney had pared down his family law practice to just do special ed. And he hired me as an intern, and I guess I wasn't entirely incompetent. And so after the intern period, he hired me as a law clerk. And then I worked as a law clerk almost full-time through my last two years of law school. So I was a full-time law clerk and a full-time law student. So I was drinking like three Red Bulls a day. Um, And once I graduated, he had retired, but his associate, her name is Grace Kim. It's the firm I currently work at. It's hers. And she hired me on as of counsel, which ostensibly is basically like an independent contractor, except I only work for one person. So of counsel, so for, well, first of all, the study yeah, of sorry, that was a lot. No, it's, it's good. It's good. The, like the more information we can, we can get going, mm-hmm. the, the better it comes up later. And of, and of course it gets me thinking as well. But mm-hmm. so one of the things that I, I tell people or not tell people that I, that I have found in talking to other people on, on the podcasts, like, uh, Will, who, who was on the last episode and, mm-hmm. um, Aisha who studied abroad is, I think the study abroad gets undersold in colleges. Everyone I've talked to has had absolutely amazing experiences, uh, yeah. learning different cultures, um, experiencing different things, being on their own. Like even you're on your own at college, but like that's like really on your own. Uh, and and I think at least at UMW where I went, it, they didn't make it easy like if you wanted to do it you had mm-hmm. to really go seek somebody out and like find information too. and it's expensive yeah and i think i don't know if i would have been ready at the time but it would have been nice if it was more accessible i guess i don't know is did you yeah, have a similar yeah. sort of experience yeah i mean i actually had a similar but also different experience so the thing about study abroad that I found is it is undersold, but I feel like the party it's really undersold to is um, whoever would potentially be footing the bill for it. Because you start to wonder like, oh, am I just paying to send this you know, college kid over there to party for like two months? And they kind of undersell the fact that it's like actually a pretty, can be a pretty life-changing experience as like cheesy as that sounds. Uh, my experience was actually, I did it twice, as crazy as that sounds. So I did it the first time just like as a regular study abroad, mm-hmm. it was not the internship. And the teacher I studied abroad with was my one professor. And like, I called her my mom away from home. Like, mm-hmm. This woman, literally, I used to go to her office hours like twice a week. She would bake me cookies. Like, I'm not even joking. <laughs> this is like absurd. But she was one professor who I just really respected, really liked her. Mm-hmm. And uh, I there was a component of the study abroad I did the first time, which was an internship component, which I didn't do. And I was talking to her in one of those office hours and I was saying how much, you know, I wish I had done the internship. 
because I saw the people who did it and they had a really good experience and, and how I thought, you know, it would have been a better, not, not that I didn't have a good time, but not that I didn't have a good experience, but sure. it would have been a nice thing to have. Where'd you go the first time? Same place, London. London? Yeah, I know. Kind of, kind of crazy. Uh, all that being said, she kind of took it upon herself saying, you know, if you want to do it, I'll pull strings and make it happen. So uh, I don't want to say her name, but she did. She pulled strings both, you know, procedurally and also financially to get me to be able to do the internship without significant additional costs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think it's, it was, it was obviously it's changed the course of my life. I don't know what I'd be doing if I didn't do that internship. Yeah. Sorry, that's a really long-winded No, answer. no, no. It's I'm good. a lawyer, so you're going to learn that I'm very long-winded when I answer questions. I, mean, I don't want to leave any like gaps of course, anywhere in the answer. Yeah, process. you can't. You can't, of course yeah. not. Um, yeah, there's one of the One of the, the, the con, I guess, to the study abroad thing is like when you're 18 or 19, like I know that I there was no shot that I would have been <laughs> ready to like do that. It is one of the things that like I wish – I could have, I could have done like a 23, like 22, 23 type time frame, And it's, yeah. it's a little bit of a college is weird. College is weird in, in that way that like, Oh, you want to take out a huge loan to go to school when you're 18 is like, you have no idea what you're doing with yourself, but right. I mean, but you have to, of, or else we're not going to give you a job. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. like the, the option would be take a gap year and work, save up some money and then do it, which might be better, but also, your friends leave and then it's a whole thing, but yeah, it's kind of a whole story for a different day. Um, but the of council thing. Yeah. So you are a contractor, but you can't work for anyone else. So basically I can, but I don't like, uh, so basically would it, be frown- it would be frowned upon <laughs> uh, to an extent. Yeah. So it's, it's this weird, like niche for independent contractors that basically only exists for lawyers to where I am able to work under the banner of a firm. So I am my own person. Mm-hmm. I'm not an employee, but all of my clients who are my clients are also under the banner of the firm. So basically the idea is law firms obviously want to have like at least more than one attorney. Sure. But for tax purposes, having employees is like stupid expensive. And just, so, just for law specifically? Uh, for anyone, but for law specifically, because you're going to have like three people if you categorize them as my understanding. Admittedly, I'm not a tax attorney like my father, so I could be wrong. But we were advised that it just didn't make sense. So the bar associations have basically all come together and agreed that for the purposes of like malpractice insurance, for the purposes of representation, of all that other stuff. You can have someone who is your of counsel, which basically means they're not your employee, but they are your employee. And that's it. So I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but in terms of like your own health insurance, is that like, does that fall under the, like you have to do that yourself or is that through the firm? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm married. So my uh, my lovely wife works at the, if I weren't, then yeah, I, I did for years pay for my own health insurance. Gotcha. Jeez. And then in terms well, of like, I got it through the bar association. The okay. bar association has a health insurance plan. Oh, so that kind of mitigates then the uh, the specific of counsel 
thing that it only does. Exists so for all the lawyers. different insurances, you're part of like a professional organization, like a bar association, like a mm. bar association. You can join their stuff, so you don't have to like pay for it as an independent plan. Gotcha. So, like I was under their health insurance, their vision, their dental, whatever. Gotcha. I mean, and then in terms of just like, obviously, you don't have to spill all the beans, but like, if you get a client, <laughs> like do you need to pay the firm some of the fee or like, is there like, or is it you like, cause, or is oh, it they yours? pay the firm the fee? So, so they pay. I, so I charge a certain amount per hour. Right. And then I take home a certain percentage of that. So the part that I don't take home goes to the firm. And then so I you, pay. Gotcha. Sorry. So you charge and through I, the yeah. firm. I do. Gotcha. And that prevents me from, honestly, it's, it's in my best interest to do that mm-hmm. as well, because it means that um, I don't have to deal with the different like funds commingling and dealing with the different bank accounts and the various other like company specific things. Yeah, that makes sense. Is that kind of the appeal to being a, an of counsel rather than like starting your own practice or firm. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It means that I can sort of be my own boss without having to actually like jump through the hoops of having a company and facilities and all that other stuff. So I, gotcha. I love it. Honestly, gotcha. it's uh, sounds like a good gig. It's pretty nice. Um, you know, we've Grace and I, uh, who I work with, I've been working with her for, gosh, since like 2014. Uh, Not only are we coworkers, but she's like one of my better friends. And we talk and at some point I'll probably come into the fold, um, probably as a partner. Mm -hmm. But for the time being, it's not something I'm particularly interested in. So um, yeah, who knows? Right now I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the way things are. We our timeframes have gotten all messed up because of uh, everything going on with the pandemic and all the different things that means not just for us, but for our clients. Yeah. I'm sure you've got a lot more different types of cases due to that, but before we jump in, yeah, man. Yeah. Before we jump into that and go down that rabbit hole in terms of law school, uh, you mentioned the bar association. And I know that generally like when lawyers pass the bar bar exam, is that the correct term bar exam? That's like the, the shining moment I've ever taken. Yeah. I've heard horrible things about it. So you go into law school and you are already aiming at special ed law. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so to get into law school, having done creative writing and then to kind of like, how does law school work from the standpoint of, all right, you figure out you want to go to law school, what's the application process like? And then what are the sort of different branches, right? I see we talked earlier, sure. people, people see NCIS and then there's mock trials and then they don't want to do it anymore. Oh, and yeah, no, like they, they watch law and order and they're like, yeah. I get to go in and yell at people. That sounds yeah. great. And then uh, they show up and they try to say a thing and then a judge chastises them almost immediately. And then uh, in a mock trial, because if you do that in front of an actual judge, it's way, way worse. Yeah. And uh, so then they decide, oh, this actually isn't for me, because you think you can say whatever you want and you very much cannot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so to get into you, first of all, no requirement for undergrad degree. Like there's no specific set of degrees you have to have. You could have 
math, economics, science, creative writing, literally art. Mm -hmm. I knew someone who had a, like an art history degree, went to law school, doesn't matter. What matters is that you uh, take the LSAT and you do well enough to get into law school. Although, uh, you know, there's been a lot of studies recently which basically show that um, the score you get on the LSAT, depending on how well you do, is either completely irrelevant to how well you do in law school or actually inversely proportional. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we're doing a great job uh, with that. But uh, yeah, so you apply, uh, you take the LSAT, you just apply, you get in, and then once you're in law school for the first time, it's like super daunting. You think it's going to be this like big thing. Because um, everyone is like, remember when you were in college, there was like probably five to 10% of your, your people in your class who you think are like, those are like the smart kids in class. They yeah. really highly of themselves, et cetera. Law school, all those kids. So everyone <laughs> comes in thinking like being used to like being one of the smarter people and like doing really well. And then you got to sort of readjust your expectations because everyone's smart. And the way law school is set up is we're graded on a curve. But the curve is not a normal curve. The curve is with your peers. So, for example, let's say you take a test and everyone gets on average a 90, except let's say I get an 87. I fail that test because I did worse than everyone else. So it's just the, even I if I, I ultimately to... did well. It's just, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you type deal. Literally, yeah. So the exact opposite happens where everyone does terrible, except the person who did the slightly least bad ends up with the best score. Hmm. So it sort of intentionally foments like bad feelings. Like it like kind of teaches you to not, you know, participate with your peers, like don't study together because you could be helping the enemy, so to speak. I mean, I never paid attention to that because yeah. I had a job, but some people who actually cared, um, who still needed to like find employment because your GPA is like so important. Your percentage, like where you are in yeah. your class is really important if you want to go to like big. Gotcha. What, do you know what the reason for that is? Why they, why they grade that way? I have no idea, honestly. I couldn't tell you. I just like, feel like uh, that's not good. Like you want your lawyers to know law and like help each other and do so this and that. So there's like, a joke in law schools that um, uh, law students who get A's make great law professors. Law students who get B's um, go to big law. And law students who get C's are good lawyers. Interesting. Because the idea is if you're really, because you kind of only learn to be good at law school, mm -hmm. less good at law. Like yeah. it's, it's weird. That like makes, like they like just teach you. It's a practical application versus like the book itself. They don't teach you. That's the thing. There's like very little practical application, at least in my experience. Mm. It's but, all about like how they're basically reprogramming how you think. How do you approach things? When I give you a set of facts, how do you identify which are the important facts? How do you identify which aren't? And then how do you structure them into a way to create your argument? So like literally through the four years, three years of law school, you go through just learning that over and over and over again. And then once you graduate, 
you go to like a bar prep class where they actually just hammer into you the specific black letter law you've never learned uh, for like two months, and then they test you on it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Interesting. Let's get, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's super weird. Around it. Yeah, no, it's a dumb system. I'm not going to lie. That's how I personally feel. Well, the way you describe it, it seems kind of dumb. Can Can you define big law? Like when you say big yeah, big, big law, law is like a, a giant law firm. So like one of those massive law firms that has like hundreds and hundreds of lawyers. They they make a ton of money. They hire you out of law school at like absorbent rates. So for example, your first job at a law school at a big law firm is not unusual for making like one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year. Or, um, uh, but they also work you literally to death. Like yeah. not literally, but kind of literally. Like um, the idea is you just work, you know, 100 and some odd hours a week doing almost exclusively like grunt work. Yep, that's not, uh, yeah. That's I, I know, I know people who went into big law and uh, honestly, some of them I thought would make it, but I don't know anyone yeah. who stayed. That's a no from me, Chief. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I like- they made us read a book when we were in law school uh, that this person wrote. It's not even like it was nonfiction. It was fiction. It was a fiction book written by a guy vaguely about his experience in big law. And all it was was talking about like how horrible it was. And I was like, why are you having us read this? And still, you know, a bunch of people completely undeterred decided to go in anyway. But so is is the reason solely the money then at that point just like or, or are there like if if you get through that well, I can't say 100% but well yeah, if yeah. you get through that like when you didn't do this so maybe you don't know the answer but like if you get through that like period of grunt work that where you're basically just dying every day like what what is on the other side of that like what is the gold at the end of the rainbow type deal so I think that, to, so my understanding, literally, I didn't go through this myself. I went like the exact opposite direction. Sure. Um, my understanding is that that is like the big con of big law is that you go in and they're like, yeah, we're going to work you to death. But if you stay for like three, four or five years and you put in your effort then eventually you'll get to a point where you can start having like a better quality of life, still get paid a ton of money and it'll tone down. And my understanding is that that is a lie. <laughs> that you work super hard doing grunt work, and then you prove yourself to be able to work super hard doing not grunt work. And that that's basically the progression. So you do continue to make more money and potentially do things that you intended to do when you became a lawyer, but like the quantity of work, the work-life balance, all that other stuff really does not drastically change. Um, so it takes a very specific personality. Yeah. Some people like it. It's not for me, but some people do genuinely yeah. enjoy it. Well, that's depressing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't on. mean to come on here no, and make no. you all feel bad. <laughs> no, I have a different perspective because I kind of had my path set so mm -hmm. early that I sort of took an outsider's view on a lot of this stuff because mm -hmm. a lot of my friends were going through it. But I got to a point where they were, you know, really concerned about making sure that they got certain good grades in these classes. And I already basically had an offer of employment, so it didn't matter to me. Yeah. My boss literally told me, just graduate. Like, I don't care what your GPA is, just graduate. Just gra yeah. That's, that must that must have been nice, though. A lot of pressure, like, lifted off, off your shoulders at, at that point, I feel like. 
Yeah, no, it was it, it was good and it was bad uh, because the other thing is it's really like in order to get through law school, you have to be super self motivated. Yeah, no one was going to tell you. There's no there's no homework. There's no quizzes. There's no tests. There's no assignments. It's just read the thing that you're supposed to read and show up and they might cold call you. And then you have your final exam at the end of the semester. And that is a hundred percent of your grade. I feel like for some people it's very good and for others it's very bad. Yeah, it was better for me, but yeah. for some people really hated it. I yeah. mean, the idea is if you have an off day, you basically fail the course. Yeah. When you go into law school, and so there's different types of law, obviously. So like there's special ed law and there's like criminal and like all these different things. How do you kind of like tax law, et cetera? How do you decide like what you're concentrating or like not you because you already knew, but like when you're going in, do they have like a like how how do people decide kind of which way they want to go? in in that because i think i would i would assume that different types uh appeal to different people like I, I i don't know if like contracts and like business law like that's another thing and then there's like sure and i would yeah. just, like obviously they're all they all deal with law but like you from a business lawyer is not really the same is that accurate yeah totally um so i don't know how it's done at other law schools i know that george mason our major like Literally the first couple of weeks we're in there, they sat us down with all the people from like the um, like the the career office, and they basically said, "You live in D.C. There's a million internship opportunities. We expect you all to be doing internships during the semester, not just during the summers." So, in my experience, the way you figure it out is you literally go do the internship. If you hate it, you do something else. Um, another possible way is, uh, the journal system. Are you mm -hmm. familiar with like the, like, like law, um, law review is a type of journal, but then there's like different, uh, subject matter specific journals that you can join where you if, draft. If those articles. are similar to like other sciencey things, then I, yeah, the, the they are. They're similar. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're, it's very similar to that. Basically you join an organization, a journal, every law school has a variety of different journals that they publish. And they're purely student published. So the idea is you join it, you read all the articles that are being submitted by professors. You have to do this thing called spading, which is um, little known fact when professors, I guess in law school, it might be the same in the sciences, I don't know. Uh, when they drafted like a scholarly article, a lot of times rather than like, actually go through and cite their own article or cite to the things they're supposed to cite they'll just like leave it blank with the word cite and then they'll send it and they make law students <laughs> go through and find the citations <laughs> to fill it out they're like we like this article it sounds good go find all the citations that they missed and so like sometimes there's like a direct thing where it's like go to this book and that's easy sometimes it's just like a broad statement and so then I have to just like go, I was on a uh, law review for a little bit. I had to just like go onto the internet and hope to find this thing. And if I couldn't find it, I just had to like say that this was not an accurate statement. Such a pain. Um, 
what yeah. if you found something that was so broad and like you found it in two places? Would you just like is, did that happen or did both. You, you just say both? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I know, dude. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're school, telling me. Law, law I quit. Not I quit my review. I quit my review. Yeah. I joined because it's supposed to be really prestigious, and mm-hmm. my dad and my uncle were both really happy for me that I got in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went through the whole process and you have to like research and draft your own article. That's like 40 pages long. And then, uh, I did all of that and I got in as like a quote unquote full fledged member after like six, seven months of that, like spading and drafting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the new regime came in and they basically tell you it's the same thing with like big one. They're like, yeah, you gotta do a lot of spading, but once you're a full member, you don't have to do spading anymore. Yay. You just get the prestige and none of the work. And I was like, all right, fine, I'll, I'll take my licks. And then I became a full-fledged member. And the day after I became a full-fledged member, they sent us more spading to do. And I was like real, real mad about it. And But then they sent this like follow-up note. Like, we know we said this wasn't going to happen. We're really sorry. This is the last one. And then two weeks later, they sent us another one. And I quit on the spot. I just immediately responded. I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I was like, I can't trust you. I can't trust you, so I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, all that effort for nothing, basically. But Sheesh. I yeah. And my younger <laughs> self, I like had a eighth of a brain considering that route, and I'm glad I did not. Um, yeah, that's fair. Well, but with that said, though, you like so you get through so. I want to go to the mock trials because I'm sure you've had yeah. you've had some funny stories uh, in <laughs> in those and maybe not you but witness some some funny things. So what goes on? So like the types of people you said oh, they watch like Law and Order and they want to yell at somebody oh, yeah. in the courtroom and they think they can say whatever they want, but that's not the case. So walk us through kind of how it works and then and then yeah. yeah. So they try to be nice the first time because they know that like some people came in with like mis misconceptions about like what you can say so like you're not supposed to be number one when you do like your opening statement like when you watch on law and order and they come out and they're like oh this person's a monster and they were good they deserve to be in jail for the rest of their life and you guys are gonna find out that they like they're the literal incarnation of satan or whatever um you cannot say any of that you have to be like very even keeled you have to basically say like I'm going to present you evidence today. And that evidence is going to show X, Y, and Z. So it'll show that the defendant had the means to commit the crime. It'll show that the defendant had the motive to commit the crime. But you can't like directly accuse them of anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So usually it starts out where like a person comes up and they say all that stuff. And then the the professor who's an active judge will like pull them aside or, or not even pull them aside, just tell them in front of the whole class. But just like, hey, can't say any of that like don't don't do so that do you do this like just in the classroom and he's just like sitting at his desk or whatever and it's kind of like a is it yeah are these, so there's are these, a like, class the called mock presentation trial. days like yeah deal? yeah kind of yeah it's like there's a class called mock trial that you take and uh literally you go up and they're like hey make an opening statement here's the thing i want you to argue so they just give you like a brief like I had a very unpleasant one. I was given, I had to make an opening statement defending the name, the Washington Redskins, like as an appropriate name. 
And so I went through and I made my argument. I didn't I mean you have to, the idea is they, they get you comfortable arguing both sides of the same argument, even if it's not one you necessarily believe in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's funny because like you got half the people who think they're going to be really good, but then they turn out to have like horrible stage fright and they just sort of like fumble over their words. You got half the people who come up and they're like really loud and boisterous and they think they're like, you know, Atticus Finch or whatever. Uh, and then they leave and you're like, you said literally nothing. Like I didn't, you made no arguments. <laughs> you just went up and you just spoke in like a haughty tone for like five minutes and then you sat down. Um, some people are genuinely really good and very compelling, but the idea is, uh, you really don't know which one you're going to be until you do it. I think that's the thing. Like you got some people who are like, Oh, I was a, you know, high school debate champion. I'm sure I'll be great at this. It's like, you may not be. Doesn't um, translate like that. It doesn't. Cause it's a, cause it, it's a unique way of thinking. It depends. You never know how you're going to react to that style of thinking until it's like drilled into you. Yeah. So because it's not the same rationale. So when you were going through it in my head, like when you said that the idea was to get you comfortable talking about saying like both sides of the same subject, mm-hmm. um, even if you didn't necessarily believe in it, the, what went through my head was like, oh, that sounds like debate. But so what is different about the way of thinking in your and the law sort of scenario versus well, I'll just say the, the difference else. is that in debate, you're making, you're typically making arguments upon which a third party gets to sort of like input their personal viewpoint. So like you're, you're explaining why you should be more correct than the other person, why your portion of the argument is better for whatever reason. In law, it's not about like being more correct. Either you are or you so let's say, for example, you've got something, um, the law says, if you dump trash on a Sunday, you're violating the law, mm-hmm. right? And let's say the person comes in and they get caught uh, dumping a bucket of water off their property into a storm drain and in that bucket of water, Let's say there's like a couple like leaves and maybe even like a candy wrapper or something, right? So the question isn't, what did the person do? You know what the person did. The facts are clear. They did that. So what I have to argue, if I'm arguing that this is a violation, I have to argue that dumping water with trash in it is dumping trash. The other person has to argue that dumping water is not dumping trash, it's dumping water. And so it's not applicable under the statute. And so it becomes, you're operating with the same facts. It's how do you narrow it down and interpret which is the correct one? And so you have to convince someone that your interpretation of the same facts is the correct interpretation. Where in debate, you could get into, well, the point, the purpose of the ordinance is to keep our streets clean. You dumped it in the drain. It's not a violation because you dumped it in the drain and kept the streets clean. Why are we making a big deal of this? Why, you know, it shouldn't be something that this person did that's like morally reprehensible or anything like that. The law doesn't care about that. The law cares, did you violate the statute? Did you violate the ordinance? Mm. And so then it becomes, did you actually do it? And did you do it according to like the letter of what you're doing? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. In the example you gave, where do you fall on that? Putting you on the spot. Oh, shoot. Uh... 
in the example I gave, I would probably argue as stupid an ordinance as I just created that you probably did violate it. I think if you have trash in your bucket water and you dump it on the street, you are dumping trash. Even if you are dumping a single piece of trash, yeah. it still qualifies. Yeah. That's but, why, that's why I would fall as well. I think. Yeah. As stupid as it is. It's very stupid. That's yeah. the thing. You have to be comfortable drawing stupid distinctions because distinctions have to be drawn. It's also one of those things where, like you said, like, why are we making a big deal out of this? Like, that's personally how I would approach the situation is like, who cares? But like when, when you actually get it, it's like, okay, well, we cannot throw the situation out because of the statute that you made mm-hmm. says this. Then once I get in, like once I turn that part of my brain off, I'm like, all right, what is actually Matt? Like what actually mm-hmm. is the conclusion? Then yeah, I'd be like, well, there's trash in it. So that's still trash. Right. Regardless of the other stuff. I just came yeah. up with, so I can't say it's perfect, but um, exactly. It's, it's, you have to relearn what's important frankly like mm-hmm. to get to where you want to go do you struggle with that in or not struggle but in life outside of law do you yes all how, the time. so do you get that <laughs> question do you get that question a lot or, or not no really? it's just uh i find myself doing it and i hate it i actually try to stop myself but i'm telling you it's like they reprogram your brain or yeah. something so like i'll have arguments with like my wife or with my family members and they'll say things and I'll respond, well, you know, technically it's this and what you just said is not 100% accurate. So under the given constraints, it's not what you're saying. And my mom, for example, will be like, oh, you're such a lawyer. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I, don't, I can't turn it off. I don't have to tell you. Uh-huh. So yeah, it happens all the time. It's, uh, it can prob- it's probably very stressful for the people in my life. And so if they're listening, I'm sorry. I try to not do it, but yeah. I can't help myself. Well, at least you're aware. That's like, that's probably without actually just turning that part of your brain off. I feel like that's kind of the best, the best it can get at, at some point. I feel like if you weren't aware, then that would be, do you do Is that? that in vo- do, you, do you do that in volleyball too? If the ref makes a call that you disagree with? Uh, not really. You restrain uh, yourself. Because like, again, I, I trust that in volleyball, at least in volleyball, you know, it's, it's, pretty obvious like if it's in or out or whatever the only thing i ever do it sometimes is i get annoyed if someone calls me for a double because i'm like i don't know i don't think that was a double <laughs> you can't judge it based on spin you're supposed to judge it based on contact and i don't know if you were able to see like i'm not going to go down that line but uh yeah no not as often although i guess i'm lying because i just described when i would but um no not too often no, honestly funny. volleyball is where i turn my brain off Volleyball is like my stress relief. Volleyball yeah. is where I go to just like get all my frustrations and everything out of my body. Yeah, that makes sense. I think everybody needs that sort of outlet. Um, yeah. Do you have trying within <laughs> within the mock trials itself? Did you do you have any sort of like? Do you go through different types of? Like, so do you ever? Are you ever in a courtroom with your specific law or like how like? What sorts of law it does that do apply to? Something super weird. Um, uh-huh. So, my area of practice requires you to participate in what's called administrative court, which means it's not a courtroom, 
it's literally like a conference room somewhere, but there is a hearing officer who is ostensibly a judge Mm -hmm. and there's an opposing counsel and there's evidence and there's witnesses and you question the witnesses and you make an opening statement and you write a closing argument and all that fun stuff. Uh, But it's like, it's that is closest to like the law and order stuff Mm -hmm. that you're going to get in the actual field of law. So like the rules of evidence, the rules of like engagement basically are reduced. So you can kind of get away with some nonsense and believe me, people try to get away with some nonsense. Uh, I once had opposing counsel in a case I had like intentionally, and this may be so bad. I was questioning the, the mother of a severely disabled child. And she was telling this like harrowing story about like what this kid is going through. Like, I'm not gonna lie, I was tearing up. Other people were, the, he, the hearing officer was tearing up. And this lady is sitting there intentionally opening and eating this literal sleeve of saltine crackers as loud as she possibly can in the middle of this testimony. Oh my gosh. And I'm like looking at her like, what are you doing? You just look like a jerk right now. But I'm looking at the hearing officer like, can you can you stop this, please? But yeah. you can just sort of get away with weird stuff like that. Um, I still remember that one because I was just like, it's just this it's telling the story and everyone's just like, and then the back of your shirt. That's a really good she, saltine uh, noise. Thank you. I'm trying my best. Uh, <laughs> and then she literally, I'm not even going to lie, at the end, she had the saltines. She held them like like the, the sleeve, like like two feet above the table, and just dropped it. Just dropped it so that it would smack onto the table. Oh my! I'm God. not even kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I my yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> like, I don't think there's anything to do with that but, information. But, but uh, so yeah, like, that's an example. Yeah. So you're so in let's say in a in a courtroom like a normal courtroom what mm-hmm. the judge would be like no stop like stop doing that or the judge would be like if you continue to do that i'm gonna hold you in contempt which means you have to spend a night in jail Ooh. yeah yeah they will give you a warning <laughs> but they'll be like if you do it again i'm gonna hold you in contempt and being yeah. held in contempt means you spend a night in prison i didn't actually know that that's interesting Not prison jail the courthouse jail yeah yeah didn't know that that's a good look at that learning something new every day yeah don't get held in contempt yeah don't don't plan on it anytime soon um well don't plan on being in court either but you know Mm. things things could change um so you're in these like these hearings or what 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 did you call them the hearings due process hearings due process it's administrative court but we call it due process hearings that's what it is under the statute so what sorts of so you gave kind of like the blanket overview of kind of what sort like the cases that you deal with, but can you go through sort of like some more, it doesn't have to be specific cases, but like sure. more examples of like you a client, a client comes to you or or your firm and they have a, this is a, well, I don't want to say typical case because each, each one is very unique given the yeah. type of law that you do, but right. a general, like we see this one, this type of one more often than others or sure. some, something along So the those type lines. we see most often is you have a child who, because of the uniqueness of their disability, can't be put 
into one of the typical classroom environments that exists in a public school system. So the best example I can give you is, let's say you have a child who is gifted academically, but has severe behavioral issues. Like they're on the autism spectrum and they have severe behavioral issues or severe like sensory issues, which mm -hmm. means that the input from like bright lights, loud sounds, rough chairs, et cetera, just sends their, their thing in a haywire. And a lot of times when you have a child who has severe sensory issues, they have to do other things to relieve that sensory component. Sometimes that's like physical aggression. Uh, sometimes it's self-injurious behavior, like hitting themselves in the head. Yeah. Um, you know, it can, it, can, it can escalate from there. But the idea is, okay, so I've got this kid who can do not just well academically, but superior academically. Mm -hmm. But they need an environment that's going to limit the sensory inputs for them. So I look at a public school and I say, what kind of environments do you have? You have a general ed classroom full of sensory issues, right? You got a bunch of kids, they're super loud, lots of bright lights, et cetera. Then you have the non-gen ed, which is a special ed classroom, very small, designed for sensory stuff, but you're around kids who are like nonverbal and you're dealing and you've got kids potentially, you know, with intellectual disabilities or learning disabilities. And so you're not being taught necessarily at the same pace as the gen ed students. So you're limiting their ability academically. So the parents say, well, I don't know what to do. I want my kid to progress academically because they can, but I also don't want them to be hitting themselves 200 times a day. Sure, fair. So um, what you do in that case, the law says you do, is the, the public system has to find a private school that can meet their needs and pay for it. And so the parents come to us and say, I want my kid to go to a private school, but I can't afford it because they're for particularly these kinds for like disabled kids range from anywhere from like 30 to $50,000 a year. Um, and so they'll, we'll go what's called an IEP meeting, individualized education plan meeting. And I'll make the argument, you don't have a placement for this kid where they can make the appropriate progress they're supposed to under the law. You have to put them in a private school. And because I'm asking for money, the school system almost always says, no, I'm not gonna do that. So then I have to sue them. And then we go to due process and we bring in, I bring in experts, psychologists, speech language pathologists, et cetera, who argue that the only environment where this kid is gonna make appropriate progress in light of their individual circumstances, which basically means for a gifted kid, gifted level of progress, like progressing the way they're supposed to, um, is in a private school. And they'll bring in their experts, which will say, we think we can teach them perfectly fine in our programs. And then a hearing officer makes a decision of who he thinks is right, or she thinks is right. And that's kind of how the process works in a very, very small nutshell. So given the case that you kind of, that you just laid out, At what point is it, so I'm trying to frame this in this question in a way that makes sense and is not convoluted. When you get these sorts of clients or calls from the school's perspective, like a public school's perspective, they've got a gazillion other kids to worry about and they maybe don't have, well, if they do or don't have the money to send this kid to a private school, like at, at what point does 
This is maybe not a question. Uh, like, do you get like a case and you're like, yes, this is viable to do this. And sometimes you get a case where you're like, no, this is not viable because oh, yeah, of XYZ reasons. Like, how do you distinguish that? It's about need. So part of my job is you. I talk about like, you know, um, the case I just laid out to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's dependent on a bunch of really specific circumstances. It depends on, on the the sensory needs being so severe they can't be met with accommodation. It also depends on the academic ability being so high that reducing it would be of significant detriment to the development of the child. So what that means is that I have to literally go through, and the first thing we do almost every single time is we tell them to go get privately or, or publicly evaluated by a professional, like a psychologist, right. or an educational professional, so that I can then read that determine what the specific level of need is. Because there are times that clients come to me and they say, I think my kid should be in a private school. And I have to sit them down and say, hey, look at these results. No, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. There is, a, there is a world, there is a classroom in a public school with the correct accommodations that can teach your kid. And so let's start there. Mm-hmm. Now, what sometimes happens is because, surprise, surprise, there's a lot of egos that go on in those meetings right and so um especially and, and i don't necessarily blame them for this but certain school officials in my experience um especially teachers who are legitimately overworked or put in really disadvantageous positions frequently right are sensitive to any sort of expectation or suggestion that they are not doing their jobs and so sometimes I go into meetings and I say, this kid's not making the progress they're supposed to. And what the teacher hears come out of my mouth is you're a bad teacher, right. which I do not say. But then they immediately get defensive. So there are times where I'll tell the parent, no, we can't go to private school. Like there's certain things that they can do. Let's just go to the meeting and ask for those things. And I ask for those things and they say no to those things. And then I'm in a position where if the school's not going to do the things that they need to do at a bare minimum, I'm not going to tell the client, you should just be cool with your kid, not getting the support. Sure. Yeah. So what you can do in that case as a parent is you can then take your kid out, put them in a private school and then go back to the school and say, I had to do this because you weren't doing what you were legally required to do. I need you to repay me for what I paid for this private school. Reimburse me. And so then that happens fairly frequently as well. But yeah, we do a lot of weeding out of certain cases. Uh, That's one of the benefits of, frankly, being small and then this area not having a ton of practitioners. Our competition is not huge, so we have a pretty large caseload. And we we can be discerning based on need so that we only have to take... We don't have to take cases we otherwise don't believe in just to stay afloat right so we only take the cases where we think we can make genuine difference yeah that makes sense and i know a fair amount of teachers that are i would say overworked stressed and or and any of the adjectives you you'd like to use especially given the the covid circumstances and, and all that's going on and so you have the the teacher doing under the assumption that they're doing the best they can, I would say that's that's fair for for most teachers. If not, I mean, my and, my rule of thumb is you don't get into teaching, especially not teaching disabled children. Yeah, you kids. So 
Right. Exactly. So when you get to, when you have that sort of circumstance where the teacher is overwhelmed, doing the best they can, you have the the child that comes to you and they're like, well, we're not getting X, Y, Z. How, how do you kind of in your head, like frame that? Because I like, for me personally, I would feel like that was a very difficult situation. Like I feel for the teacher, I feel for like the the child as well. And like, it's, but at the end of the day, like if the school is legally obligated to do something, then they should be held to, to do that. But like, how do you kind of work through that sort of so conundrum? I somewhat guess? ironically, I treat them with kid gloves is what I'll do in the meeting is I'll say at the very beginning, we understand that the staff in particular, the teachers are doing everything that they can do. What we're asking for, when we're saying the progress is not being made, it's not, this is what I would say to them. Mm -hmm. It's not a condemnation of the work that you've been doing. We know that you've been trying your best. But the problem is you haven't been put in an advantageous position. You haven't been given the resources you need to accurately educate this child. You haven't been given the time to be able to spend appropriately with this specific student. You've been given a lot of responsibility and been asked to do things that, frankly, are not reasonable given the constraints you've been put under. So what we're asking for right now is the allocation of specific resources so that this can be done properly. So you basically tell them it's not your fault, which it's not. 99% of the time, it's not the teacher's fault. 99% of the time, it's someone in the administrative office, not even of that school, usually central administration. Mm -hmm comes down and says, uh, you know, we could put them somewhere, but let's just fit another kid into this class. Yeah, I know he's got severe behavioral problems, but you can handle it, right? Or, um, you know, they don't really need speech services. We don't really need to teach them this specifically. Let's just, uh, instead of allocating one of our speech pathologists to show up, we'll just have the teacher sit down an extra, you know, 30 minutes a day and work with this person. Not recognizing that what you're asking that teacher to do is find 30 minutes in an otherwise completely packed day. Yeah. And so it becomes, you know, unreasonable. Yeah. Ah, jeez. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you get the, the phone call or whatever, the client shows up to say, we have this case, you decide that it's viable and you believe in it and you want to take it. What are, what's the next steps for you? Next step, usually, depending on what it is, is I ask for an IEP meeting. I, t- I notify the school district that I am representing the child, and I have the parent ask them to, we need to meet as an IEP team to address whatever the main I- issue is. Uh, individualized education plan. Oh, it's oh, yeah, basically yeah. Okay. the document that tells the school what to do for the specific kid, and it's legally binding. So it's basically a contract. Okay. So if the parent signs it, the school has to do it. So the school puts things in there, we, the parent signs and the school has to do it. So we go to one of those meetings, I tell them, put X, Y, and Z in there or change what's currently in there to this other thing and then we'll be good. And sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. Like there are some cases that I go to one IEP meeting and that's the entirety of my representation because the process is really unnecessarily bureaucratic and there's a lot of procedures that have to be gone through. And so... I'd say a solid 20, 30% of the time, the parent just has no idea how to navigate the process. 
and the school doesn't do a good job of explaining it to them. And so I show up and there the parent says, I just want them to do this. And the school says, we can't do this. And then I realize, oh, you just need to say it a different way so that it doesn't trigger certain procedural issues. And then it's just easy. And then we're done. Yeah. Sometimes it's more complicated, like I said before, and then I have to go to multiple meetings. So I'll go to a meeting, I'll ask the school to update the testing because you always want updated testing, unless it's been done within the past like six to eight months, maybe a year, you want more updated testing. Um, then I take the testing and I go back and I say, look, I've got experts who are saying he needs this, she needs this. You give them that. Uh, they either agree or disagree. If they disagree, then I say, okay, uh, we don't have any other options now other than a file due process, which means soon, yeah. basically. And that's, that's how it goes typically. I mean, there's, there's, you know, more steps in between, but that's the gist of it. Sure. So you get in, so are you get into the, the IEP doesn't quite work out there. You bring in a psychologist or a speech pathologist or whatever, whatever the case is, there's still no impasse. And then you go, then you're in the, the due process hearing and administrative court. Now, how does that normally, again, normally, how does that typically go if, like once once you get to that point, there's been obvious communication between yourself and the school and mm-hmm. with no compromise. Right. So at that point, what is it like going into that situation? Because to me it would seem like either whatever you're asking for is like maybe too much, but also you can pick and choose which cases you want. So that would lead me to believe that you I'll say generally have a, a strong case given your experience with what you're doing. Sure. So what, like, what is the situation like as you get into that point? So it's tough. Um, typically due process is what we call a battle of experts. So when I go to that IEP meeting and I ask them to do testing, uh, I guess a part I sort of skipped is that after they've done their testing, typically, if I don't feel or if we don't feel that their testing presents a clear and full, accurate picture of the needs, then you can get what's called an independent educational evaluation, which basically means you go to the school, you say, I'm not sure this is accurate. I'd like a second opinion, and I'd like it to be a private provider of my choosing. And the school district actually pays for that evaluation conducted by the private provider. Real quick, what, what do you need? Like, do you need something specific before you can say, I want a second opinion? Nope. It's literally the only area of the law that's 100% in favor of the parents, basically. So what it says is you don't even have to give them a reason. You just have to say, I don't think it's accurate. And then they have the school has two options. They can sue you in due process and prove that it is accurate, which is almost impossible to do and costs a ton of money because they hire outside attorneys to do it. Um, or they can just say, okay, and they pay like, 1500 bucks and you go find your person. So we go find our person and then when we go to due process, it's basically, we have our experts, they have their experts. Whose expert is more believable? Whose expert is more, more, you know, accurate. Um, and so we, my job then becomes to disprove the findings of the previous expert and to prove that the evidence that they're presenting is not either sufficient to make the claims that they're trying to make or is misleading to some degree in terms of how they're interpreting it. 
so it's literally, I, I call up witnesses, I ask them questions, I go through cross-examination with their witnesses. And at the end of it, an independent hearing officer makes a determination, you know, who he thinks is more accurate, who he thinks is right under the law. Right. Because there's specific requirements, specific uh, standards that have to be applied. Are those standards the ADA? Is that what those come from? Or is that something else? It's actually the IDEA, typically. So Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. uh, It was passed like 2004, I think. Gotcha. I should know this, but I don't know it off the top of my head. But uh, the idea is it's a separate statute. It's not the ADA. There's two statutes really that apply. It's the IDEA, I just said, and then Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which has to do with um, equal access provisions. Mm. Um, parts of the ADA do too, but yeah, it all gets jumbled together. But the idea ultimately is that um, you bring your claims and, and there's like specific things that are stated in the statutes and then were reiterated by the Supreme Court with regard to what the requirements are. Um, unfortunately, they are kind of stupidly vague. And so it leaves a lot of area for interpretation. Um, and at least in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the hearing officers tend to be, tend to side very frequently with the school, regardless of the circumstances. Um, mm. For whatever reasons, I, I don't want to, you know, assume anything, but for example, I had a hearing officer recently who, let's just say, misstated certain portions of our case. Um, and the background on him is that his wife is a middle school principal. Can you like appeal, I guess? Can you yes, appeal you can. something like that? Yeah, and we often do. Uh, and that gets appealed to the federal court system. So it escalates super fast. So you yeah. go from um, administrative court and then your appeal is to the federal court system, so a federal court judge. Uh, and then it's super weird because you don't appeal to the appellate federal court. You just appeal to the regular federal court, but as an appeal. Mm. And so no new evidence should typically be introduced at that time. Um, and you don't even like go to court. You just send in your documents, you send in, you write up a new argument basically, or the same argument again, highlighting new things. And then a judge decides whether the hearing officer made the right decision. And then is that the but end of no it? There's no verbal argument. That's the end of it typically, yeah. yeah. So back to the, the sort of the conference room place, cause I, I wanted to ask this, but then sure. I, got in, yeah. I got intrigued by other things you have your experts in there. Do you, does it typically take more than one day? Cause I, I would think if you oh, hear yeah. like testimony from a psychologist on, from who's representing the school or whatever, that you would need to ask your expert, like what that means. Cause I know, is that kind of how yeah. that works or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So to some degree, I mean, you gotta remember by the time we get to due process, we've sort of formulated our argument already. We've made it. A couple times we know what they're going to say they know what we're going to say largely okay occasionally some new stuff comes up usually it's something like a witness says something that they just didn't expect them to say and either it's positive or negative sometimes it's legitimately crazy um like sometimes witnesses come in and they just like absolutely lose the farm like they just 
no idea how to navigate the process and they start saying crazy things. I had, again, in, in one of these cases, I had this witness come in and just go on this like long diatribe about how she went to see, this was a school teacher. She went to see the private school and she was like going on this long thing and she was saying, oh, they did this lesson and it was so bad and none of the kids learned anything from it. And I had to be like, uh, how do you know what people did and did not learn? Like, are you inside their heads? Like, you can't testify to that. Um, so sometimes it's crazy. Most of the time it's pretty standard. So you know what they're going to do. But the shortest one we've ever done is, was, I believe, three days. Uh, and the longest was like seven. So you're just what in in there at what, like nine in the morning, out at four or whatever, or just like uh, usually it's like nine, and then we agree to like nine to five, and then usually end up leaving at like seven. Jeez, yeah, like, it's but, a long day. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think probably yeah. for for you and others that are in your in your niche of law is probably worth it to like that's kind of. Well, why you started doing it in the first place? Yeah, I mean, so, it's it's definitely it's an experience because you started, like I said, like nine o'clock in the morning, usually nine nine thirty. Uh, call your witnesses. If it's an important witness, the questioning usually goes on for it can go on for four or five hours, just one sided. Yeah. Dang. I didn't realize how extensive it, like it actually would become. Mm. You would hope it wouldn't be that way, just because like you would hope that all parties involved would want what's best for the for the child. But like, I, mean, I don't know what I can and can't say here. I can just tell you that while I think there are individual parties on both sides that want what's best for the kid, I think there are certain parties sometimes on both sides that are more concerned about certain tallies than they are yeah. the specifics of the needs for the child. Or even like budgets and other like they have like yeah, that's what districts I mean. to run. Like yeah. yeah. They're worried about setting up precedent, for example. Um, mm. things of that nature. So it can it can be unfortunate at times. Um, there's also this dirty little thing where you send your witnesses up mm -hmm. and they uh, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but it's not a court. And so there's no one there to really enforce perjury rules. No. So you see, I've seen a lot of perjury. I've seen a lot of lying on the stand by witnesses. Um, the rule of thumb, because you can't enforce it during the mm -hmm. actual hearing, because what ends up happening is it's, it's an informal hearing, it's an administrative hearing. Someone says something I know to not be true. I call them out on it, right? Then the hearing officer says, oh, you know, what do you mean by that? And then the witness says, oh, my bad. I misremembered. I meant this other thing. And then it's just like, womp, right? So like, for example, I had one where I asked about a specific kid in the classroom who was basically bullying one of my clients for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, do you recall this? And the teacher was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so then I kept asking more and more questions about it, but like sort of vaguely. And then I asked my question and the teacher went, well, yeah, you know, in that specific circumstance, this happened. And I was like, so you do know who I'm talking about? And they were like, yeah. 
I was like, okay. Like, what do you do with that? Like, you just admitted to perjury. Yeah. But there's nothing I can do about it. So what you typically want to do, I guess some tradecraft here, is when someone perjures themselves, the number one thing you want to do is not call them out on it then. Because the way we make our closing argument is in a long brief that's usually like 35, 40 pages long. And in it, we get the we get the full transcript. So what I can do is I can take the transcript of their testimony and then right underneath it in my brief, I put the part of the record which proves that they lied. And I don't give them a chance to explain themselves or to mm. say, oops, I misremembered. Sneaky. And so when a hearing officer reads it, they think, oh, I can't trust anything that comes out of this person's mouth. And so it goes to like the weight of their testimony, yeah. how much you want to believe them. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a, yeah, that's smart. I'm sure. Well, geez. Uh, yeah. Speaking of, speaking of precedence though, and then we'll, I'll ask you this, this kind of thing, and then we'll kind of get ripped out, wrapped up. We've been yeah, you been talking about this and been talking about this for a while. Yeah. But it's, it's a good conversation, man. It's a good conversation. Yeah. I enjoy learning things and hopefully those listening get something out of this. So yeah, I hope so too. all in, uh, all in good, all in good faith, but in terms yeah. of precedence, COVID, is very new <laughs> when there's no sorts of precedents for for that at all. So what what are the yeah, sort of the me. what are the new cases I guess or new sorts of things that you're seeing now uh, given part, the yeah, pandemic? Yeah, the hardest and, part with COVID was uh, was virtual learning. So mm-hmm. a lot of my clients just straight up cannot do virtual learning. It's just not something that they're gonna be able to navigate. Either they've got like ADD, they've got other issues, learning disabilities where they need someone like there teaching them that just like virtual learning doesn't work. Uh, on the other hand, some of those same kids also because are, are medically compromised. And so they can't go anywhere. Like they're advised not to leave the house. basically, right. Or if they do like under very specific circumstances and conditions. And so... The question then becomes, okay, I can't teach you virtually and I can't send you anywhere. How do I teach you? And that's what we've been navigating with a decent number of our clients is what are we going to figure out as an alternative here? Because while some people, you know, their response to that is, you know, they're, they're kids. It's one year. How bad is it going to be if they don't? Well, super bad. And they lose the, that year of development and like socialization and all sorts. It's not even just the socialization. I mean, the way schooling is built up is it's all a scaffold. Yeah. So you're telling them like, you can't miss third grade and then go to fourth grade. Like it's all developmental skills. You can't even miss 10th grade and then go to 11th grade. Like it's important that if you miss that stuff, you're just way far behind. I mean, I've got kids in some of my clients, like what I'm arguing for, for example, They'll be in high school and they'll be like a normal high school student with like a learning disability in math. Mm-hmm. And at one point back in like fourth grade, there was an area of math that because they didn't get someone teaching them, they just never picked up. And that just stays. And so you'll see them back in high school and you'll go, okay, I want you to do algebra now. I want you to do calculus. Can you divide this for me? They can't do division. And it's just gone under the radar the entire time because that's not what they've been tested on. But never 
those, I think there's this expectation that gaps will be filled over time just by the nature of how instruction works. And gaps almost never get filled unless they're specifically filled. Yeah. So it's just not okay for these kids to not get certain things. So that's what we struggle with. I mean, the pandemic has just been really, really tough in that regard um, because schools are overwhelmed. They're not willing to, to advocate any resources, honestly, because they're tapped out, which I get. But these kids need it. And so I'm in positions where I'm asking for things and they're literally looking at me like, we just can't. I want to do it, but I can't. And so then we've got to figure out alternatives. And I'll be honest with you, the alternatives are not good. The alternatives are not excellent. So it's just really unfortunate. So a lot of our clients have unfortunately just had to accept that they're going to have to work really, really hard to fill in those gaps in the preceding years and just devote additional resources when possible to teach. Yeah. Has there been an uptick in like um, the school can't provide this resource or whatever, but we can give you some money so you can go to like a mathnasium or a Huntington learning center or something nope. like that. Is that not an option? It's or It's the opposite. So the pandemic happened and particularly in Northern Virginia, um, the administrators at schools looked at the pandemic and they looked at their budgets for special ed. And they basically said, cool, we get a, we, this is a get out of jail free card. We don't have to do anything because we can just blame it on the pandemic. And so the, at the beginning of it, when all the kids were not in school, they were literally going to parents and saying, no, you know, school's virtual. So like, we don't even have to do IEPs. Anymore. Like, we don't have to implement them. The things we agreed to do, we don't have to do them anymore. We're not required to do them. And there was explicit guidance saying that they were. Um, and so we're at a point now where there's been a lot of administrators who rather, you know, will go in and say, you have to do this. You have to teach this kid. The response has just been, not really no we don't think we do and so the fallout of that has been that a lot of high level administrators particularly in special ed for the various school districts in northern virginia have been replaced over the past like three or four months well they've retired should probably have done their jobs better you would mm, think so. Should I say that uh, on the internet? Nah, whatever. Bro, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure what you're going to put on here. I'm, I'm trying to say things in a way that's not going to make my life more difficult. Yeah, no, um, I, would, I would hope not. And one of the things that, I don't, I don't know. I, I think a lot of them, I mean, the disclaimer here is this is all just my personal perspective. And yeah. Opinion. I mean, uh, it's what I've seen. It's the conclusions I'm drawing based on what I'm seeing. I don't have direct evidence or proof that this is like what they decide. Well, I have one administrator testifying in a due process that they believe that. So there's a legal requirement for a free and appropriate public education. That's mm -hmm. the, the language in the IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And uh, I did have one high-level administrator say under oath in a due process that uh, it was their opinion that during the pandemic, FAPE, which is the free appropriate, was optional. Okay. Which, well, then I stand by what I yeah. just said. Okay, that's yeah. fine. That one specifically. Yeah. The rest of them, I'm sure, did wonderful jobs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, damn. I feel enlightened in, in a weird way. Or not weird, but just like this is a whole world that I didn't know existed. I, I 
Yeah, like I knew it was difficult for a lot of people generally, like even without the like the disabilities and that sort of thing it was difficult for a lot of people to like have younger siblings that were still in school, like mm-hmm. some of them were just bored out of their minds and like didn't do anything. And then like, mm-hmm. um, and then several friends who are teachers, like some enjoyed the virtual one because it's less like the commute wasn't there and all of the reasons right. why people enjoy working from home. But then you know some teachers who maybe we'll say are not as good with technology and they were not happy and just all around, I think has been super difficult. I'm very, very glad that I'm not in school at this point in time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard. It's really difficult. Um, there's just been so administrative things have just fallen through the cracks because people are not in buildings talking with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a case where, uh, do you know what the SOLs are? Standard of learning. Yes. Practice. Yeah. Those, those when, at least for like, in like the honors classes and stuff, those were just looked at as like free days. Cause they were like, you yeah, could walk exactly. in and just, but they're but, required yeah. for you to yeah. graduate. And I had a case, I had a case where, uh, the school just like straight up forgot to give them to one of my clients. What? I mean, yeah. Yeah, okay. straight up just didn't do it. They were like, yeah, no, he, the parent opted out of it. And the, I'm in the meeting with the parent. The parent's like, I didn't, I didn't. You can opt out. As a oh, parent. you can. You can. And then you have to go under what's called the alternative line standards, where you basically take all your work, put them in a binder, and mail them to Richmond. And then they're like, yeah, this is science. And then they send it back. And they yeah, it. this is science. But, um, <laughs> I mean, that's the gist of it. It's really not very complicated. But this kid was supposed to get SOLs. And for mm-hmm. us, it's really important because SOLs tell you how, what kind of progress they're making. Right. Um, and so they're like, yeah, no, the parents said that uh, they, they, you know, opted them out. And the parents like, I did not do that. Like, I didn't. It's not there. Oh, and the teacher's geez. like, ooh, well, we thought you did. That's why I didn't give it to them. And I was like, did you? And then the opposing counsel literally had the gall to respond because the other attorneys are on the line in this meeting had the gall to respond uh why is that a problem and i was like if you don't know why that's a problem i'm not sure we can continue having this conversation was my response i was like i don't know how to answer that i was like you know why it's a problem that's insane yeah man yeah that's insane oh my god well on that note (laughs) yeah sorry we could wrap this up uh yeah i don't even know i'm not mm, yeah we'll go with speechless on that note we'll wrap this up the uh the law firm that you work at again is uh, the law office of grace e kim if you google it it's right there it's like the first thing that pops up sounds good if any of you guys listening or anyone you know has any sort of uh potential cases or anything james is your guy uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Learned a ton. Uh, hopefully you guys learned listening, got, got something out of this as well. A little insight into what's going on in, in the world of special education, but I really appreciate your time, man. Yeah, no, thank you. This has been a blast. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Awesome. Hopefully everything will return to normal soon and We'll get out of this COVID stuff. A little but, worried uh, about Delta, but I, I hope so too. Yeah, we'll see. And then hopefully maybe we can, who knows? All right. With that said, we'll see you guys later. Thanks, everybody. That's good. See you guys.